As a professor of global studies, directs our Center for Great Commission Studies. We tend to just call it the Mission Center. Uh, of course, Dr. Pace, who teaches pastoral ministry and, and uh, leadership uh, and preaching, uh, is here, and also who works with the Pastor Center and our Hunt Scholars, and then, of course, Jim Shaddix, who uh, directs our Pastor Center and is a professor of preaching. <clears throat> we wanted to follow up. I, again, I don't know if, if, uh, if you try to connect the dots of today. <laughs> this morning, I started off by trying to ask some real questions. Uh, and then tried to point us to the idea that we needed some real definition standards and expectations uh, to figure out what the end goals were so that we could begin to plan backwards to attain those goals in creating a vision strategy. We, we talked about the national study that you all have done, and we talked about how some of the proficiencies that have been put out in that study and then how the task force following that is looking how to implement those proficiencies and to, to make sure everybody's competent and proficient in certain tasks and certain abilities in order to lead. So that begins to fill in some of those definitions and some of those standards and some of those expectations. Then we, we recognize that you need a contextual strategy. You need something that's going to work in your place. So when we start talking about discipleship, we start talking about leadership development. Uh, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning, you'll have an opportunity with breakout sessions to hear more about preaching, to hear more about cooperative missions together, to hear about theological educational opportunities and more training opportunities. And then we're going to talk about church revitalization or church health together to try to put in some contextual specifics to help you build that contextual strategy that helps you reach those end goals that create the definition standards and expectations that we've been talking about. So what we wanted to do for a few minutes <clears throat> with these gentlemen is to follow up on some of the discipleship and leadership concepts before we got the day over with because we don't want to leave them. And we want to give you opportunity to ask more questions to these guys. Every one of these guys has, has been a pastor. Every one of these gentlemen have been leaders. Scott worked with... Uh, the International Mission Board for years as not only a missionary but a leader of missionaries. So he has international cross-cultural leadership experience as well as local church pastoral leadership and seminary leadership. And so in, in this way, one of the questions that I was going to throw out these guys, and I know, Dr. Shaddix, you, you alluded to this and mentioned to this some, and, and I don't know if my assumption's right. This may be a perception, and I was talking about my perceptions earlier, and they're not always valid in the first panel discussion. <laughs> my perception, and I've even said this in conferences, and I probably said it in class, and I hope I'm right, because I, I hate to be inaccurate when, when I don't mean to be. Sometimes if I mean to be, you know, it's just. But uh, <clears throat> my perception is is there aren't a lot of great examples out there of churches and leaders who are heavily involved in really strategic and intentional discipleship processes and in leadership development processes in local church life. Um, you know, I, I, have, I have people ask me all the time as a consultant or as a guy who just talks to churches, you know, what, what's the go-to book? What's the go-to curriculum? You know, who, who do we look to for, for that contextual, intentional discipleship process? So wh why is it, why do we think, if that's true, if my assumption is true, there aren't very many good examples why do we think that is? And can we talk about that 
for just a couple of minutes. Why so few good examples of intentional discipleship and leadership development? I'll let you start because I know you alluded to it earlier a little bit. Yeah, I, I have to be repetitive, you know, and just respond to that. I, I mentioned two things, I think, in the session that I did just almost in passing, but, but uh, you know, certainly a, a key points. One is that we are a, we are a crowd-driven people. Uh, we we like to do the things that involve the crowd. Um, I, you know, the y'all come mentality. We want everybody. We don't want just the crowd. We want everybody in the crowd to be a part of everything. So everything is open. And I don't think intentional disciple making the way Jesus did it. Um, I, I don't think I don't think he just operated on a y'all come mentality. He ministered to the crowd. But then he was intentional and selective about moving some to the point that they would be ready to embrace the Great Commission. Uh, and so that, that, that's one thing. The other thing that I, I did mention um, is, is we, we're a multitasking generation, and so we automatically look for shortcuts. Uh, we want to look to how to kill as many birds with one stone, which I'm all about. I want to be a good steward of time. But we look to how we can overlap. So we, you know, we prayer for example. We we pray while we're exercising. We pray while we're driving. We pray, which there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus seemed to think that there was a need for some extended protected time of prayer. But we don't have time for that. Well, disciple making is that way. You know, disciple making. There aren't any shortcuts to doing life together. There aren't any shortcuts to life on life, but because we look for shortcuts, you know, in in avenues, I think sometimes we short circuit it. So these, sure. I think, you know, everybody heard we allude to those things. These other guys may have some things to um, build on that. Sure. Any comments from you guys as to why so few examples? Um, I could kind of jump on some of those and kind of springboard further and maybe things that just kind of dovetail together. But when I think of what it means to be a disciple, I think in some ways we've changed the definition. And so when we've devoted ourselves so heavily to making what we call disciples and they don't ultimately produce genuine discipleship fruit, maybe it's because we were so focused on creating a faithful church member rather than a true disciple. Maybe we were focused more on creating a, what Jesus may have seen more as a, a, a legalistic Pharisee in terms of behavior rather than a genuine disciple. And when we've defined discipleship that way, we've set ourselves up to fail because all of the programs or things that we do to create those ultimately aren't going to produce what we're trying to. Um, and so I think in some ways we, we, we almost have to reevaluate how are we defining discipleship to determine whether or not our means of doing it will be effective. Uh, that's to echo some of what uh, you know Jim shared uh, with that. And then, too, part of what uh, Jim shared, too, I think is um, difficult in our culture that doesn't um, – maybe promote or elevate genuine relationships. I know that's what, some of what Jim's describing. But we're so superficial, not just in our crowd-appeasing type of uh, way or approach to discipleship, but in terms of what we're willing to be transparent about, in terms of what we're willing to talk about, 
um, to where we ever really get down to heart issues, and we just kind of create facades and, again, redefine those as, well, they must be a good disciple because they're, they, they, they meet all these checkpoints. They, they satisfy all these criteria, and I'm not sure that we're, we're kind of aiming at the right target. And so, of course, we're going to miss. And I think that's, in some ways, why we don't have a lot of examples of what good disciple-making ministries would look like. So the other thing, I, would, I, as I was thinking about this question, my own um, ministry experience was in the pastorate on the mission field. First thing that came to my mind was the the idea that making disciples is just a mess. I mean, we really work with people, and you don't allow them to stay at this surface level, and your real goal is this transformational relationship with Jesus. At some point, it's just hard, mm-hmm. and it, it's complicated. People come to you not like machines that you can push buttons and they react a certain way, but instead they bring real problems with real broken issues or confusing thoughts. And as a pastor, as a missionary, as a leader who's trying to develop leaders, it's a lot, it's a lot less painful if there's a straight line process. But genuine discipleship requires this crooked journey of actually walking with somebody through whatever train wreck they happen to bring in right now or the thing that you told them to do that they didn't do and now they bring the problem of why they didn't do this back to you. Now we have to fix this together. And as a pastor, you have so much else to do. It's just so much easier to not do that one thing because a crowd can almost be managed a lot easier than an individual can be managed. And so this discipleship of one-on-one or one-on-one small group is much more complicated to, to manage. And it's just, I think it's, there's a almost a self-esteem issue. It's easier to get back. And say, hey, I can, look at this bunch of people, whether it's fifty or hundred or ten thousand, you know. But that one that I'm responsible for, yeah, he can't forget. Remember to zip his pants, you know. And so it's got all this stuff happening. So obviously, these folks here are working with leaders. I'm moving right on. <laughs> these folks here have. Have, have the opportunity, the privilege to work with leaders of churches. And these leaders often, I'm assuming, would come to them and say, you know, help me, help me understand what are some good discipleship options, some processes, etc. So, so what advice would you give these leaders who then have to encourage these pastors to engage in intentional discipleship and leadership development processes in their ministries? Who wants to hop on that first? Scott's going to go first because he's in the middle. And, it, and his pants are zipped. So. Go ahead, go ahead I, I, Dr. I, I, I'm assuming. <laughs> so in, in steering um, pastors towards things, um, you know, I, I think a lot of times what pastors want in it's somebody to model it for them. You can't tell them how to do it. You can't teach them how to do it. You can't show them in, in a programmatic way because you can't take the range of their church, right? They can't say, here, you do it for me. But uh, in some ways, introducing them, being a resource. Pastors, especially when they've been at the same church for a long time or if they've lived in the same state for a long time. I saw this when I lived, you know, obviously I grew up in North Carolina, lived in Florida for uh, three years, was in Oklahoma for nine years. Back here, a lot of times pastors uh, or church leaders who have never lived beyond their immediate context, 
just don't have a frame of reference to how things are anywhere else. And they, they just haven't been clued into those. They haven't had exposure to those. That's not of their own fault or their own undoing. It's just the reality of the world we live in, and especially when you get into associations that have rural churches or those types of things. And so I think in some ways we have the responsibility to help expose them to, to those resources. Um, and that's certainly what our goal would be, like with the pastor center or with the, the ghost center. I, I think if you look at some of that, I think the other thing is, is to model. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, um, for me, in my own personal walk, I learned how to make a disciple because my pastor at one point grabbed my hand and said, come on, I'm going to teach you how to pray. And he pulled me down on my knees and he prayed with me, he prayed for me, he prayed in front of me. And I learned how to pray by praying with him. Uh, I had a pastor, the same pastor, who sat down and said, let's talk about how to study this. Now, you're not going to go out there and teach pastors how to study the Bible and pray, but the, the model still holds true. And I know this is what Dr. Shaddix was talking about in, in a lot of times in, in his um, session earlier, is that it has to be modeled, it has to be done together, it has to be life together. And so there's no magic programmatic bullet that's going to happen, but I think exposure to those things and then modeling for those things. I know we think all pastors know all these things, but quite honestly, there's a lot of pastors out there, and, and bless them, they're doing everything they can with the resources they've been given and the opportunities they've had, um, and they haven't had the opportunities that others have, and you have a chance to be a resource for them in that way. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking that we asked that question when I was a pastor, just a, a new pastor in South Alabama, um, and I was just like every other new pastor who had a degree. I thought I knew everything. I mean, you could have told me anything as a young pastor. Um, but I remember my, uh, at that point, associational missionary uh, called me on the telephone. Hey, I'd like to take you to lunch. Um, and so I didn't, obviously, as a young pastor, didn't have any money either. So if someone's going to buy my lunch, that was always a good thing too. And so we went to lunch, and he just told me, he said, look, I Part of what I want to do is I want to get together with young pastors who want to uh, and help you in your first year or your first 18 months in your pastorate. Now, again, I thought that I knew everything in the world, but the fact that a guy who had some uh, experience was willing to say, let, so I actually, we did, we get together about once a month. Uh, every once in a while, he'd bring other young pastors together for something at the association of young pastors, you know, um, a Bible conference or leadership, and through that process, really, there was this idea that this guy as a leader in the association was discipling uh, the pastors who were willing to be discipled in this process, and I really learned a lot through, even through that relationship, as I look back now at what the guy was doing, um, at just a, how organizationally uh, you can do discipleship, because it's one thing to know how to do discipleship from a college minister or a youth minister, but from a pastor and some leadership, there's a different level. So leadership development, discipleship, issues with the church. And so I was just thinking about this, that that was a really good model, and I really saw that kind of transfer over. Again, I thought I knew everything. I would have never called him to say, hey, I need some help. Never, because I had a degree, I had, you know, I was the pastor of this church. Um, but the fact that he was willing just to say, let's go to lunch, and then tell me, this is what I want to do. Are you willing to do it? And then for you know, a year or so, we would get together. Um, and so that was, a, that was my experience with my associational missionary at that time. You know, um, the Great Commission says that we're to make disciples. And, and it's an interesting thing, a, a statement that I have said lately, even in a pulpit, um, 
is, you know, in order to make disciples, uh, you have to make yourself one. Um, and, uh, and, and I recognize the role of the Holy Spirit. I, I know what I'm saying theologically here, but in the fa fact that the Holy Spirit's involved in, in leading us in sanctification. But, but if I'm not growing myself, if I'm not mindful and protective of my own discipleship life and even my own leadership development, um, how much do I really have to give to others and to help them and to, and, and to help them grow? And so I, I don't want us not to talk about for a few minutes. Is that, was that a double negative? I, I was trying. I don't want us not to talk about what we need to be doing and how we can encourage our own continued discipleship and leadership development, because I, I think we would have experienced, and many you all do it from a different perspective. <clears throat> For example, if I'm teaching a D-men seminar, a doctor of ministry seminar, 90-something percent of those guys are going to be pastors probably. And I hit these guys pretty hard on some of the why questions, like I talked to you guys about this morning. And at the end of the week, when we go back, and we can have all these superstar celebrity guest speakers and everything else all through the week, and they have a really good seminar, at the end of the week, they often come back and say the most important thing we talked about is why am I doing what I'm doing because I've forgotten why I'm doing what I'm doing. <clears throat> and it's because these are busy, su successful pastors. And it's so easy to be so successful and so busy that I'm not maintaining myself. And we all know too many stories of people who have not finished well or, nor have they maintained well. So what, what encouragement can you guys give these associational leaders about continuing their own personal discipleship and even their own leadership development processes? Jim, you want to start off? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. Um, you know, I, I tell students all the time I, that I'm going to tell them something that's probably going to be a discouragement to them, and that is that when I was young, I used to think, man, there's going to come a day where this gets easier. And I'm talking specifically about being a, a disciple, you know, that it'll – It'll just be obviously be naturally getting up early every morning right. to pray a couple hours, and I'll, I'll just you know soul winning will be just you know it'll flow off my lips, and I'm just hungry for the word all the time. And I you know I I'll say the same thing to you that I, I say to them. Some of y'all may be different. And I hope it is different for you, but that's not the way it's turned out for me. You know this is an uphill battle. Um, the Christian life is hard, growing in the Christian life, spiritual disciplines. And I think it's that way because it is a spiritual, you know, there is spiritual warfare. So I have a sneaking suspicion that that's more common. It's not limited to me, which means that there are pastors that, you know, that you shepherd in your associations, as some of which are not just the young guy just starting out that needs it, but but the older guy who may not talk about the spiritual battle because he was like me, and that is that he just, you know, he just thought by this time it ought to be just really, really easy and really, really natural. And it's kind of an embarrassment, you know, to admit that, no, gosh, I'm still struggling. I'm still wrestling. So, I, you know, I think one of the things that I would say is don't make any assumptions. Don't limit what we're talking about to just the need for the younger guys to keep growing one of the easiest things and most common things that is neglected the the further we get in ministry is the issue of spiritual dependence. I mean, just, you know, think about it. It's natural. The more we know, the more degrees we get, the more books we read, the more conferences we go to, 
the more it's easy to convince ourselves that we can do this thing. Uh, and, and, and yet, Scripture is just constantly reminding us that God chooses to use weakness, not strength. And, and so I think the older we get sometimes, the easier it is to, well, you know, okay, I've been around the block. I can do this thing. I've done it. I, and yes, we've always got things to pass on to others. But if we ever lose sight of the fact that we are toast if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up in our ministries, in our preaching, in our disciple-making. And so I think there are pastors, uh, regardless of age, out there that are always going to be wrestling with that, that need somebody to come alongside them and keep reminding them uh, that uh, you know their weaknesses are part of it. Uh, and... And yet also keep reminding that those weaknesses ought to drive us to an utter desperation for, for spiritual help. Yeah, um, I came to some similar realizations um, in my own ministry in life. And the dependence on the Lord was part of it. But for me, it became, as a pastor, I fell in love with um, ministry for Jesus more than I did for Jesus. And as pastors... We can love the doing of ministry, right? We can be energized by preaching a sermon or by leading someone to Christ or by serving a, a, an elderly person or visiting someone in the hospital. I mean, we're gifted for this. We're called to this. These things invigorate us. And you can become a professional pastor who loves their job but doesn't love their Savior, and to lose sight of that is, is really scary. It's really scary when you realize that that has become the idol in your life. And um, for me, that, that's been a challenge, an ongoing reminder of don't just let the ministry become your mistress, but love your Savior and love Jesus. You know, um, the, the, the passage of Scripture that's just kind of been branded into my heart uh, for this is in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, where you know, God said, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the rich man boast in his wealth, or the strong man boast in his might, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me and understands me, that I am the Lord who exercises mercy and justice and loving kindness in the earth, for I delight in these things. Let him who boasts, let him who finds any place of confidence, find the confidence in this, that he knows me and understands me, that I am the Lord. And that intimacy of personal knowledge of knowing Christ, and Paul called it an increasing, surpassing greatness of knowing Christ's knowledge, that we would continue to grow in that as much, and it, certainly more than uh, the growing in our acumen or growing in our abilities or growing in all of these other things that we would say are ministerially necessary. Uh, don't fall in love with, with being in ministry as much as you are in the one you're serving. Uh, just follow up, excuse me, Scott, if you want to jump in there, but uh, and this is just a restatement of that because you were there when Vance Pittman mm -hmm. was with us not long ago with our Hunt Scholars, and we, we got to talking about just the number of uh, pastors and ministry leaders that, uh, you know, had lost their ministries in recent days, uh, you know, many to, to moral compromise. And he made this statement. He, you know, he he said, he said, you you 
you, you can trace many of those back, the fact that before a man had an affair with another woman, he had an affair with his mm. ministry. Mm. And I thought that was so insightful, yeah. and it's saying the exact same thing that you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, to just piggyback off what uh, Jim just said, uh, of uh, several years ago I, I reflected, and then I've re-reflected after the events of this past summer, that I had never been in the ministry, whether in a local church or on the mission field, that I hadn't been around a guy who destroyed his ministry because of immorality or because of some kind of moral failure. And I just reflected on that at one point and thought, that's the most terrifying thing I could ever think of, that you're that close to somebody exploding and you just it just happens over and over and over. And 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 so over the years, it's just I just operate. I, sometimes I don't think it's as spiritual. It's just just a frightening idea that on the four spiritual laws we say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But in June, I was teaching a D men seminar after some of the news came out about guys in our convention who had fallen morally. And I wrote on the board, "Blank has a wonderful plan for your life." And I said, "Have you not seen that? Have you used that?" And they said, "Yeah, yeah, that's the four spiritual laws." And I just wrote in that blank, the devil. I said, see, this is true too. The devil has a wonderful plan for your life. And he will push you as high as he can push you, give you the highest exposure he can give you, and then he will destroy you so that he can hit all those around you. And if it's something that I think drives us to protect our ministry and guard ourselves, it's the fact that, that we are in positions of leadership and influence uh, that we represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, I don't say it as a person that, that every day you get up, man, I struggle every morning to get up, read the Bible, pray, the whole thing. But I think that we have to take very seriously the thing that really drives me these days, you've asked, is this idea that so few people finish well and that finishing well is what we all start out to do. Um, and But finishing well requires each day <laughs> finishing that day well if I finish that day well, I'll finish that week well, and I can finish. You know, this morning I reminded some of you or told some of you all for the first time about this discipline of why idea. Yeah, we got to ask the right questions in the right order, and we got to ask why, then who, then what, then how. It, you know, and I was referring to a strategic visionary process. But that discipline is true of everything, and I, I say that all the time in the sense that if I forget why, if I forget why I am, and I forget who I'm supposed to be, then my what's and my how's will become my idols, and they'll take priority. And if all I do is focus on my what's and how's, and I forget about my why's and who's, then everything gets distorted. And we've got to always remember why, why we're here and why we do what we do, and who, we're, who we represent, who we're supposed to be, Lots of who questions. We don't talk a lot about who in our culture. Um, and then what does that then lead me to need to do uh, as a byproduct? So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And, and we certainly have friends and and, uh, and have had experiences of those who failed. I was with, with Dr. Aiken not long ago, and he and I were having a conversation about that. And he was listing, he goes, you know, I, I want to finish well. And he goes, I want to finish like, and he named off, he named five people. I won't mention them to you now, but you know them. Because I wish I could finish like him or him. And he named off five role models 
that he had in his life who have finished well. And he says, I, unfortunately, I could, leave, I could list 50 who have not. Um, I had to leave you today to go teach a class because I have to cover for someone who has not. And I, had to, I have to teach their class this semester that I don't normally teach. So it's a, it's a reality, and I know it is in your life too. So a little more positive spin maybe. <laughs> I asked these guys to think about, <clears throat> and, you know, because I really, I really want illustrations. Uh, I, I asked them to think about what, what's a favorite example, favorite story, uh, favorite experience in disciple in discipleship or leadership development. I just asked them to think about that. What's a, what's a favorite story, a favorite example from their own life or from, from one they've learned about? And I asked them to share about that a little bit. Who wants to share first? So I, if I probably the um, one that really sticks out with me with this crowd, it, it makes sense. When I was, a, um, was 22 years old, I was a student pastor at a, at a large church uh, in Florida. And a young kid... Um, was in my ministry and his parents were real close and so we spent a whole lot of time for the next four years with his family uh, and as he grew up he was kind of in the I think the eighth grade so he grew up through high school while I was there well then I left that church and I went to be a pastor and I was looking for a student pastor and he went to college and so I thought well I'm just gonna hire him I know him I know his family I'll hire him as my student pastor and so he came and he worked with me as a youth pastor for a couple of years as I was the pastor I got to watch him, teach him, gave him a chance to preach, um, taught him through typical small church Christ. We both come from a big mega church, so he'd never been in a little bitty church, and so this is what it's like to be in a small church, and so we did that. Then he left, and he went to New Orleans Seminary, um, and then I went overseas as a missionary, and so we would keep in touch. He would write me questions uh, about stuff he was learning in school, then he went to become a pastor and did his D-Men, and he wrote a, uh, wrote a fantastic D-Men uh, project on church revitalization before it was the cool catchphrase. Um, and it turned into a book, and people bought the book. Uh, and so he stayed at that church probably 10 or 12 years, and he and I would talk, and then he said, hey, how can I take this church from a revitalization, getting it from being on the decline up, and turn it to a missionary launching place? So we talked. I was the, I was the foreign missionary, and he was the pastor, and so... We spent some time emailing back and forth from Europe and Asia about the church and how that could be a um, uh, how they could be a, a missionary church. And so he just started sending missionaries and equipping missionaries and involved in missional uh, activities in his community. And then about three or four years ago, I saw on Facebook he he wrote me and he said, "Hey, would you pray for me? Uh, the the association." that we both were in, so the, 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 I don't know what the name of it, I was in Pensacola, Florida, but the Pensacola has, has called me, and they want to know if I will be willing to come and be their associational missionary to lead these churches to do the thing that I was doing in those churches. And I thought, well, that's a pretty cool story. I mean, they don't all end that way. But those, so take a guy from being kind of a middle schooler all the way up now that he's leading an entire association in Scambia County, Florida, uh, and leading these churches and doing a great job. I'm just super proud. Um, you know, I, I feel like I've answered some of these questions you asked me that a while ago, so I, I don't want to be repetitive. I told them about just some texts and phone calls I get, you know, periodically from the church in Denver with just, you know, some, I mean, think about Chad and, and Mark and, and Dan and guys that still, um, you know, email me and say, hey, uh, or text me and say, hey, I'm starting a new discipleship journey with a couple of guys. Would you pray for me? You know, and these are 
guys I had the privilege of, you know, of walking with. And I just, I love that, you know, as much or more than being able to mentor students, you know, in a, in a seminary context, just knowing in the local church when you're, you're doing that with, you know, with businessmen and, you know, and husbands and fathers. And um, I, I guess one recent one, though, it, it's kind of a, a mixture between the two. Uh, uh, me and a couple of guys, my forces back here, there's four of us, went to uh, Myanmar uh, this uh, summer to do some training with pastors. And um, uh, we, we, we knew some missionaries we were meeting that were meeting us at the airport. But when we got there, we got off, we got our luggage, and there was a guy there that, uh, uh, you know, was a missionary, but I had not seen his name, uh, you know, in any of the communications we had. So I didn't know he was going to be there. And so uh, I knew that I knew him. I knew I recognized his name, but I couldn't put, you know, how you can't put the, you know, the situation, you know, uh, especially if you've moved around a lot. And so as we were walking out to the car, I, my, my assumption was he had just been in a class. Uh, and, um, I, I said, you know, hey, man, uh, you know, were, were we together at New Orleans or were, were we together at Southeastern? Uh, and he said, neither one. Uh, he said, uh, I was in Colorado when you were there. And, and I'm embarrassed to say this because I had obviously had forgotten, you know, about this uh, journey. But he said, uh, you know, you and I started meeting together and you, you know, you, you spent some time pouring into me. Uh, you know, while we were there, and I just, you know, I thought, man, here's a here's a guy that's now making disciples among the nations. You know that, and, and you know, to my discredit, even a, a discipleship journey that had just slipped my mind. I hadn't even thought about in in years. You know, but yet, you know, to know that in that, you know, that ministry, and I, I, I kind of. That, that was more, though I wasn't a DOM, it would have been more in that kind of relationship with, you know, with someone else. And just to see God's grace, you know, in his life and now training pastors, you know, he's, he's there training pastors who are, who are making disciples in there. And that was just a great encouragement to me. Um, man, let it always be about this, right? The testimony of transformation and those lives then transforming others. You know, this is what we're, we're doing, right? This is what the, the Great Commission is. Um, you know, I think of a young man uh, who came to me uh, in 10th in grade, ninth or 10th grade, and his confessions on a beach, on a back-to-school retreat, were, were very graphic and real, and things that even as a young youth pastor, I had not been exposed to. I... I had no idea some of the nature of the struggles, and but I began to disciple him how I had been discipled. Someone showing him how to pray, how to rely on the Lord, how to understand the role of the Holy Spirit, to saturate your heart with Scripture and all these various things. And he ultimately graduated from high school and went to NC State. And he uh, enrolled as a, uh, a, made a civil engineering major. And during his years in, in high school there, I, I brought him on as an intern. He began to serve in our in our church and in our student ministry uh, there, and God used him to make a difference there. And as he graduated and prepared to graduate high school, he he you know we began to help discern his call to ministry. As he discerned that call to ministry, uh, he you know enrolled in the seminary here. Uh, I moved away, and he inherited some some ministry that I ultimately left vacant, and had raised him up to fill the shoes that I then ended up vacating so to speak and while I was serving in Florida and then I, while I was in 
uh, Oklahoma, he he kind of walked through some some additional ministry and educational things. He moved to South Carolina. I kept in touch with him and went and served and spoke for him there, but continued to mentor him. I'd taken him with with me on a mission trip uh, and and basically introduced him to his wife and walked through them, did their wedding, you know, and, and those types of things, and just continued to walk through life as they've had children. Uh, he ended up getting his Ph.D. in, in, in leadership uh, from Southeastern, and now he's um, serving in D.C., Washington, D.C. area, as a pastor and ministering there. And, uh, you know, I think of that young man standing on the beach confessing to me his deepest, darkest secrets and the journey that we walked on. Um, and I see how God's using his life and to be a part of that. And, you know, one of the things I was thinking about through one of the earlier questions that, that after you were to ask, you know, so many times the reason we don't see disciples produced from our ministries is because we're not willing, and, and Scott was answering this in this way with the, the curvy messiness, we want to celebrate the stories of victory, but we're not willing to walk through the messiness that it takes to get there. And we look at people and we say, you know what, they're, they're too far out there. It would require too much time. It would, it would just be that. I'm not sure that, that they'll ever turn that corner. And we just sell them short of what we're willing to invest in them. But oh, just to have somebody walk through the door and to say, hey, that became a, a, an associational missionary down there in Florida to say, oh, they, they're, they're serving over in Myanmar or, or in this way. Or they're serving as a pastor in the D.C. area. We love to celebrate those, but we don't often know and, and aren't willing to take the investment that it requires to spend time with that young man, that 10th grader on the beach. I remember the 13-year-old girl that came to me at the end of a worship service one time, uh, and, and she, she said, she's brokenhearted. This is one of our leaders I said, you know, hey, Jody, what's, what's, what's going on? What's, in, what's on your heart? She said, I don't know. I just feel like God's calling me to missions, and I don't know what that means. And as a 13-year-old girl standing there before you, I looked at her with the profound wisdom and said, Jody, I don't know what that means either. <laughs> and I said, you know, like, hey, but if we'll be faithful to pray and prepare, let's just see what God does. Within two months, God had called her parents to the international mission field, and she finished her middle school and high school year serving in East Asia. God used her to call her parents to missions. This is what it takes to require to invest in people, and it's not always easy, because I also have the stories of the heroin addict that I led to Christ who never quite turned the corner on his addiction, but as I walked him down the aisles, I married him, but then as I counseled his wife or his widow through the brokenheartedness of losing her husband to an addiction, those are the same stories of a testimony that was changed for eternity and yet still was messy during its last days on earth? And do we share and understand that those testimonies all fit in the same category of what we're called to do when we're called to make disciples? Yeah, that's good. You know, my, uh, uh, as a, uh, as, as I guess we call it a senior pastor, that's what we used to call it. We have cooler names now. Um, <laughs> I was I was the associate pastor of everything at one point or another except music, and there's a reason for that. But um, uh, and then I became a senior pastor, and and I spent about ten years in uh, an association in eastern Oklahoma as a, as a senior pastor. And and uh, one of the things that the director of missions, and that's what they called him, um, he had a real heart for for missions. And we, and this, you, you said this earlier, Scott, so I was, this is actually a live illustration of a suggestion you made. So we, we had associational short-term mission 
partnerships and teams, and I'm sure some of you all do that. So I pastored the larger church eventually, and so we always made sure we had enough people to make sure that we could do a trip. But then, you know, Eldon Hill or Boudinot or Carter or Welling or, you know, there, there was no way they were ever going to have a team. But they could send one or two. And so we would have teams of 30 to 50 people going out from East Central Baptist Association to various parts of the world. And we did all kinds of various things. What was interesting to me about that is it's either five or six married couples became full-time career international mission board missionaries out of those short-term mission trips. Uh, and what's really interesting for me is just a couple of years ago, and Anna can tell you exactly when, uh, in my last trip to Zambia before our partnership there ended, uh, I, was, <laughs> I was on the compound of our partner seminary there where we were training their faculty. And uh, my good friend, uh, who Matt Lawrence and his wife Janet, he was, a, he was working with logistics and support for that part of Africa with the IMB, were, were there. He was working on a truck, and I literally just walked up on him. And uh, he and I grew up about 30 minutes from each other in the Ozarks. And I remember the very first time Matt ever went to Africa on that short-term mission trip with the Central Baptist Association. And uh, to think in terms of the impact and the potential impact of your ministry is unbelievable. So uh, to think in terms of how intentionally we can, we can be doing even small things that can become big things. You know, one of, the, one of the questions I have for these guys, especially since, uh, and Scott brought this up too, but especially with Scott here and his experience, uh, you know, the nations are, are, are not just coming to us, they're here <laughs> and have been for some time. And, uh, you know, this, the, this, the Baptist Convention in North Carolina has been very diligent and working very hard on people's next door and identifying unreached people groups in the state and things like that, which is, which is a wonderful work. The Center for Great Commission Studies has worked closely with them in that process. And so you, you, have, you have ethnically diverse, you have culturally diverse, uh, you have language, you, you know, you, you have first, second generation immigration, uh, you have all these kinds of issues. So one of the things that I, I'd like us to kind of talk about before we're done is, is you know, to think about some, some specific insights into how we could implement discipleship and ethnic and, and, and leadership development in these ethnically or culturally diverse environments that we're now in. Uh, let, let's let's make a comment or two about that before we go. You, you mentioned it as an idea, so let's let's flesh that just a little bit. Scott, won't you? Yeah, I just would say probably two or three very simple um, kind of bullet point statements that can be fleshed out. First, um, doing something is better than doing nothing. Uh, sometimes we let the sometimes we let the um, uh, the fear of doing it wrong stop us from doing it at all. Uh, and so uh, I would just say try with the Hispanic uh, young men in your area, the African-American, uh, the age, just something is better than nothing. But you're going to have to do it on purpose because it will never happen on accident. Uh, it is too easy. Um, uh, Donald McGavern taught us about the homogenous unit principle. No matter what you think of it as a missiological strategy, it is a description of the way that we flock together, which means we are always going to flock to people who are like us. Uh, 
So the only way that we're going to engage in cross-cultural or multi-ethnic discipleship is to do it on purpose. So we need to identify, find, and then intentionally move toward uh, those who are different than we are. And then the third thing I would say is be willing to take a step back so that we can allow those who are different from us to take leadership roles. Um, it is very tempting for those of us from the white, uh, white middle class uh, area to assume that those who are not like us are somehow less intelligent, less capable. We see it all around the world. But in order to equip and to train leaders, it's going to require us to, to both raise up and then enlist and then deploy and then back up and let people actually lead. Uh, I would echo that and just continue to carry it forward to say um, some of that white Anglo privilege mentality is, is not based on principles, based on preference. And we just simply have to be willing to say it doesn't have to look like what it's always looked like for us. It doesn't have to look like what I know best. Um, and I think we can learn a lot when we're willing to be teachable and learn from others. And But I echo the intentionality of how can we um, merge together? How can we participate together? How can we cooperate together? And some of that involves allowing churches to kind of cross-pollinate and maybe even uh, try to see how churches may be able to benefit one another, even through something as simple as a, a combined worship experience on a Sunday night or swapping pastors in the pulpit on a Sunday morning or some of those types of things that can at least begin to build the bridge before, if not, it, it opens up to the opportunities for leadership and position and, and those types of things. Uh, I guess the encouragement I was, you know, would give you is don't ever forget that the disciple-making model of Jesus um, is, is intrinsically cross-cultural. We're sitting here today, you're sitting here today because um, it was cross-cultural. You know, we, we have a tendency to think this stuff started with us. You know, how are we going to take the, you know, are we going to cross over to some other cultures? Well, you know, it, it started as a Middle Eastern model, you know. and, and, and We're the ends yeah, of the earth. We, exactly. <laughs> you know, we have a tendency to look at the woman at the well, and our first thought is, yeah, this is about, you know, going to other people. We, we're the woman, you know, and we're, we're the woman. Uh, and so we're the beneficiaries that Jesus' disciple-making model actually crossed in the culture. So I think when you boil it down to life-on-life disciple-making, um, it, it's probably less complex than when we're thinking about strategies and programs and church planting and all of those types of things. Uh, uh, you you can invest in the life of someone of a different skin color than you, uh, and that life investment is uh, is going to be a lot more effective, you know, than us trying to, you know, even wed churches of different races. And we want to try to do that, but uh, uh, yeah, I just I think Jesus' model of disciple making is is intrinsically cross cultural, and and it it works, uh, you know, when we cross those lines. So.